Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Uh, today we are continuing our series, actually finishing our series in the book of Ruth. Um, and I uh, missed you guys last week. Uh, I was away, but uh, Pastor Todd did a wonderful job last week. And I want to encourage you, if you've missed any parts of this series, uh, I would really encourage you to go back and listen. You can find it on iTunes. You can watch it uh, on our sermon archive from our website as well if you'd like. But get caught up on the series because this is a series that you need to see or hear in context. Uh, and that's the reason why we walk through the book like we do. And so uh, go back and get caught up. And I won't, I won't uh, rehash the whole series um, because we don't have that kind of time today. But what I will tell you is I want to get us caught up a little bit on where we're at. Uh, just as an overview, the two primary themes of the book of Ruth that we see woven throughout this story, this narrative, is the theme of kindness and redemption. And we see this over and over and over. And what we see is... Um, is that there are people in the story of Ruth that represent, uh, that represent us today. Ruth represents us. Uh, Jesus is represented by Boaz. And so we see a picture of, of God's relationship with us as we see this picture played out in this story. Um, so where we left off last week, Ruth and Naomi had come back to Bethlehem. Um, Ruth had been working in the fields and she met Boaz. And so last week, Pastor Todd talked about this, this moment when uh, Boaz was on the threshing floor, and he was at the threshing floor because he was guarding his crop, and so he was sleeping there, and she went and basically, for all intents and purposes, proposed marriage to this man, which was totally unheard of, uh, that a woman would do this, and she basically proposed marriage to him, and, um, and even in Ruth chapter 3, he uses the word kindness, he says, the kindness you've shown me is greater than the previous kindnesses, and so um, he has this moment where he uses this word hased uh, for kindness, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but hased is a, the loving kindness of God, and that really doesn't do it justice, because what it's talking about is this covenant relationship we're in as a child of God, we're in a covenant relationship with God, where it's different than a contract, a contract says if you do your thing and I'll do my thing, we'll get along. So if you do what we agreed upon, I'll do what we agreed upon. But a covenant says, I'm going to do what we agreed upon even if you don't. So even if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'm holding up my end of the bargain. And I'm grateful that as children of God, we have a, a servant God who loves us enough with this said love that even if we fall and even if we're imperfect, he doesn't renege on his end of the bargain. He doesn't say, well, you're not perfect, so now I don't have to forgive you. I don't have to love you. You're not my child. I don't have to bless you. So I'm, is anybody thankful for that? Okay, I am. I'm grateful for that. So we're in covenant relationship, and that's what we see here. So Boaz uses this word, a covenant relationship, this, this has said love. He says the, the kindness, the love that you've shown me is greater than what you've even shown for your mother-in-law or your, your, your dead, your, your spouse that passed away. And then he says, I'm going to make this right. And so Ruth goes home and says, I don't know what's going to happen. He said he's going to make it right. Naomi said he's not going to wait too long to make this right. And so it doesn't say specifically, but I think the next day probably Boaz goes out to make things right. And that's where we pick the story up in Ruth chapter 4. So in Ruth chapter 4, it says this. 
Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz was a redeemer. He was one who could function as the kinsman redeemer for this family, but there was someone more closely aligned that was supposed to do that. It was their obligation to do it before Boaz could do it. So he went to the city gate, and the city gate was where, in this day and age, a lot of business was transacted at the city gate. A lot of uh, formal work was done there. Um, So it was a public place, but the elders would gather, and so what Boaz did is he followed the law according to Deuteronomy, what you were supposed to do to be the Redeemer. So he, he went to the city gate, he waited on this man to come by, this closer Redeemer, and he said, hey, why don't you sit down and let's talk, friend? So he sits, sits down, and then he says, hey, all, all these elders happen to be here. Why don't you gather around, guys? Let's chat. And so he brings them around because he knows he's got formal business to transact of, that he's got a purpose for them being there. So he brings them together and he sits them down, and in verse 3 it says, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, so the Redeemer responds to him and says, I will redeem it. So what Boaz says to him is, hey, there's this piece of property that Elimelech had, but Elimelech died, and so Naomi's selling it. And one of the functions of the Redeemer, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, one of the functions of the Redeemer was to buy back land that had been sold. And so the reason they did that was for the inheritance. They wanted to make sure that um, whoever, whoever was born in the lineage of this deceased person would have an inheritance. And so he said, hey, one of your responsibilities as the Redeemer is to buy back this land. And this man is thinking from an earthly perspective, going, great, I could use some more land. That'd be wonderful. So he says, yes, I'll buy it. And it goes on to say in verse 5, Then Boaz said, Oh, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and the inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot buy or redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz is a master. I love how he did this. Um, this is almost like, have you ever been asked, somebody was talking to you, maybe before or after church, and they say something like, hey, you got a busy weekend? Yeah. Well, hey, what are you doing tonight, this evening? You got any plans? And it's like a minefield, isn't it? You're like, I don't know. I might have plans. What kind of plans are you inviting me to before I tell you if I have plans, Right? Because they might say, hey, I'm moving a grand piano from the fourth floor of my house. Would you come help, right? Or they might say, hey, I want to take you to a nice dinner. Dramatically different proposals, aren't they? <laughs> See, nice dinner, I don't have to be close to you to do that. If, if I'm helping you move a piano, we better be best friends, right? We better be real close. And so you don't really know what you're getting into. So when Boaz proposes this, he, he sees where he's going. He knows what the end is, but this redeemer doesn't. So he says, hey, why don't you buy this land? And he says, great, I'll buy the land. And he goes, oh, by the way, I forgot. If you buy the land, you've got to marry Ruth. And isn't it interesting, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, isn't it interesting that even here he calls her Ruth the Moabite? That she's still known as the Moabite? She's still known as that foreigner in our land? So he says, you've got to marry Ruth the Moabite. And remember, if you are a man with some 
some esteem and some power and some wealth, you probably don't want to marry a Moabite. And the other thing is he goes on to say, hey, I can't do that because that'll jeopardize the inheritance from my family. Because when you redeemed a family, what your, what your intention is, is that you are perpetuating the name of the deceased. You're making sure their name isn't forgotten. And he said, I can't do that because I want to make sure my kids have. So I can't be concerned about his kids. And this was, um, this was an abomination to, in Judaism for someone to say, I, I refuse to redeem my kindred um, for a number of reasons. But this was a big deal that he would say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not interested. Uh, because in Jewish culture, there's such a sense of community uh, even in the bigger culture, but even within the context of family, there's this sense of we take care of each other. That's what we do. Even if it hurts me, I'm going to help you. Uh, and so that's why even in the New Testament, uh, we see in the book of Acts, when they came together, they sold what they had. They lived communally together because they weren't thinking, let's go be a, a cult somewhere, a comp, you know, live on a compound. What they're thinking is, hey, you're my family and I want to take care of you. Your need is my need. And so for this man to say, no, 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 that need is not my need, it was a big deal in Jewish culture. So this is what we see next. Verse 7. Now this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning uh, redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So when, when the Redeemer says to Boaz, you buy it yourself, he literally takes his sandal off at that point. Now, this was not a common custom even in this day and age. So when the, when the writer of Ruth is telling this story, he has to explain it to the reader because this was a custom that had already passed by the time that the readers were reading it. So it was old then, it's very old now. Now what we see though is this is a derivative. It wasn't uncommon in business transactions for them to exchange a sandal. So if you and I were conducting business and I said, hey, I wanna buy this piece of property off of you. And you say, okay, I want this much for it. And I said, okay, I'll give you that much. What I would do is I would hand him a sandal and then when the transaction was completed, the property was mine and the money was his, then I would receive my sandal back. So I guess sandals were a big deal. They did not want to lose those sandals. Little did they know, you know, 3,000 years later, we'd be able to buy them at Walmart for $3, right? <laughs> so so they would, that was a sign of transaction. It was symbolic. Um, but what we see as well is, this is somewhat of a derivative of the, the law that was written in Deuteronomy 25. And the Deuteronomy, if you're interested in reading about the law of kinsman redeemer, it's shared in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Uh, and I want to read just a short passion, uh, pa passage of that. But... There was this idea, like I said earlier, if you failed to redeem your family, it was, it was a disgrace. And this is what we see in Deuteronomy 25, uh, and I'm going to start in verse 9. So if I refuse to redeem my family, this is what happened. Then his brother's wife, so the widow, shall go up to him, the person who refused to redeem his family, in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, 
This is a little bit comical to think that from that point forward, I would be known as the man who had his sandal pulled off. It sounds like the worst Alfred Hitchcock movie ever, maybe. Um, the man who had his sandal pulled off. But what it's really trying to get at is, is this idea that, and again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, names were a big deal in Israel. And for your name to be forgotten was enormous. That was the worst thing that could happen to you, was for your name to be blotted out of history. And essentially what would happen is, if I refused to redeem my brother's family, my brother's name, his widow would come to me, take off my sandal in the presence of the elders of the community and, and the people around, and spit in my face. And that was a, a sign of disgrace and shame. And, and basically at that point, my name would be blotted out of the history of Israel. They wouldn't say my name any longer. What they would say is, if they were telling the story and they said, yeah, it happened to the, the guy who had a sandal pulled off. Because they wouldn't even say his name. That's how disgraceful it was. So again, I want to put this in context for you. When this man said, I will not redeem my family, it's a disgrace. And what he's, because in, in Hebrew view, this is a man that's choosing the selfish path instead of the path of community. He, he's choosing the selfish path instead of the law because the law was written for the good of the community. Um, and so this is an, an enormous thing for this man to do and terribly selfish, but it works out perfectly for Boaz. Verse 9 says, uh, of Ruth 4, it says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have uh, bought the hand of Naomi, the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So he basically makes a statement and says, this is what I propose to do. I want to take care of this family like the law requires. I want to do what I'm supposed to do. And he says, literally, he says, I'm buying Naomi to be my wife. And what he's really saying, another way to, to interpret that is, I'm redeeming Naomi. So what he's saying is, I'm redeeming Naomi. I'm redeeming Ruth to be my wife. I'm buying them. I'm paying the price to redeem them so that they can be my own. Not in a, in a slave or ownership way, Way, but in a relationship way. So this is important because we're going to circle back to this in just a second. Verse 11 says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, there's too much to get into all the detail here, but this is interesting because what the, the people say is, hey, may your house be like the house of, of Joseph, who married Rachel and Leah, and they were blessed. He was a patriarch of the faith. Um, Joseph, I'm sorry, not Joseph, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was the grandson of Abraham, this patriarch of our faith. Big deal. And they're saying, let your house be like the house of Jacob, the house of Israel. And then they go on to say, um, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And it's interesting that they would bring up Tamar because uh, this is, the story of Tamar is not a, is not a family-friendly story. <laughs> Some of you know it without reading it. It's okay. Uh, you can go back, Google it later if you'd like, and you can read it in Scripture. But the story of Tamar is scandalous because uh, of the, the nature of her relationships, and she was a victim. Um, but what we see is she 
became part of the lineage of, of royalty. And so what they're saying essentially is, just like the story of Tamar is a terrible story that, that God used redemptively to bring something good from, uh, what we're praying is that when you marry this Moabite woman, in this tragedy, in this heartache, in this pain, that God will raise up something beautiful from something tragic. That God will redeem this terrible situation for his glory in the way that he redeemed Tamar's situation for his glory. And some of you might be here today and you're going, yeah, I feel that a little bit. I feel like I'm in the middle of a terrible situation. And this, this blessing that the, the people at the city gate gave to Boaz is the same blessing I would release to you today. And I would say, may God bring beauty from your ashes. May God bring a redemptive season through your season of hurt and pain and loss. Because that is what our God does. It is in his character and nature to be redemptive. That is just what he does. That's what comes naturally to God is he is a redemptive God. That's what he wants to do. That's what he, he desires to do, and especially in the lives of his children. Verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Um, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. I want us to rewind just a little bit. So if you were here uh, for week one of this series just a few weeks ago, the way the chapter one ends is like the ending of a bad movie. You know, the movie ends and you're like, is that it? Everybody dies? Because that's kind of the end of Ruth chapter one. Her sons had died. Her husband had died. She was penniless. Uh, rabbinic tradition says that, uh, that Elimelech and his family uh, descended from aristocracy, maybe even royalty. And so they were a family that had a lot of wealth. And so when they left Judah to go to Moab, they literally had everything they needed. They just didn't want to stay in, in Judah because of the famine. So they left and went to Moab. So imagine this. They go to Moab, and they're wealthy. Her kids are healthy. Her husband's healthy. And just a few years later, they return, and their stone broke. She's lost the three men in her life that meant the most to her. And, and now she's at the point where she's got nothing. She's got no hope. She's got no future. And this is when she comes back and the women of the town say, isn't that Naomi? And Naomi means cheerful. And she says, no, no, I'm Mara because I'm bitter because God's dealt bitterly with me. So remember, this is what happens at the end of chapter one. She says, God's dealt bitterly with me. He hasn't been good to me. Look around me. Do I look like I should be cheerful because of my life. And again, I want to remind you, some of you are in this place today. You're going, man, I've lost so much. I didn't think my life would end up this way. And I want you to know today, your story's not done. See, if you would have told Naomi then, hey, this is going to turn out, it's going to be fine, she would have laughed at you. She would have thought that it was the most ridiculous statement you could ever make. How could things get better? This is where I'm going to spend my life, is at this rock bottom moment, but yet, here we are at the end of the story, and in the end of the story, the, the people of her community say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And what they're really saying is, he has not left you without hope. He has not left you without a future. Because again, that is the God we serve. 
They say this, Naomi doesn't say this, but they said, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. See, they recognize from the outside looking in, yeah, you lost two sons and you'll never be able to forget about them and you will always have a hurt from that. But this daughter-in-law, this Moabite foreigner has loved you better than seven sons could have loved you. So they're, they're helping her understand, you've been blessed when maybe you don't even realize you've been blessed. In the face of tragedy, you have been blessed immensely by what you have. Verse 16 says this. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. So she got to to nanny her grandson. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And it's interesting because... He wasn't Naomi's son. He was Ruth's son. Technically, she wasn't even blood, right? But that didn't matter because he was her grandson. And beyond that, she loved him like a son because he was the face of redemption. He was redemption personified for her, that God is good in spite of what I've experienced, that God can heal, God can restore, God can bless, even in the face of total destruction and total loss and total hurt. And they named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Um, Let me keep reading. It says in verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Now, if I know anything about reading in my Bible, everybody loves reading genealogies, right? But this is interesting. It says, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. So it runs down this lineage, this genealogy. And a couple things I want to point out to you. Um, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, there are five women that are mentioned. And this is totally unusual for women to be mentioned in the genealogies uh, of this day and age because women just didn't have the same social standing. And so you were known by who your father was. But in the genealogy of Jesus, it's interesting because in the book of Matthew, they include five women. One of the women we mentioned earlier, his name was Tamar. So Tamar had a very scandalous past and she was included in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, What we also see is two other people uh, that that we'll mention here that were in the genealogy of Jesus. One of them uh, was Ruth, who we see here, her namesake is the book of the Bible we're going through right now. So Ruth married Boaz and they had Obed. So she's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And there's another woman, if you go back to Joshua chapter 2, there is a, a woman mentioned, her name was Rahab. And anytime you talk about Rahab, she's known as Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute. Now there's all kinds of titles you could give me, a father, dad, pastor that I would embrace, but I cannot imagine anyone would embrace the title Rahab the prostitute, right? So when the children of Israel, they're about to invade Canaan, the promised land, um, they go to Jericho and they send spies to spy out Jericho. When they get to Jericho, there's this woman named Rahab that takes them in and allows them to be sheltered there. And because she shows kindness to them, what they do is they, uh, they, she is spared in what God does to the nation of the city of Jericho. So... Uh, Basically, she kind of fades away. We don't know much about her. But what tradition tells us is that she married a man uh, named Salmon. And if that name sounds familiar to you, I just read it to you a moment ago in this genealogy. So Rahab married Salmon, and they had a son named Boaz. Is this starting to come together a little bit? 
See, if you think God can't use your messed up life for his redemptive purposes, you are way off. So, so wait, it gets better. So we have Tamar, who's down the lineage. We have, we have um, Ruth, who's a Moabite, right? We, we have the prostitute, Rahab. And all of these women are in the lineage of David, which is pretty cool. They all ended up siring a king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, uh, until Jesus. But if you know anything about Scripture, you have to remember, Jesus is known as the Lion of Judah. He descends from this same lineage. So what, the, what does the writer of Matthew say? He says, hey, let me tell you about who was involved in the lineage in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let me tell you about how messed up some of these people were. Let me tell you about some of the issues they have. And what he's telling us is God is a redemptive God. God will take messed up, hurt, broken situations and use them redemptively for his glory. <laughs> Rahab, the prostitute, just happened to be in the right place at the right time, do what God was asking her to do, even though she was not a godly woman by our standards. She did what God was asking her to do, and she was in the lineage of Jesus Christ. See, God included her in this story, which some people would think was luck, but it wasn't luck. God knew what he was doing. This woman who probably felt so desperate and so hopeless was included in the story of Jesus, this, this meta-narrative that God is telling. So what we have to see is, no matter how broken the situation, God can use it redemptively if we're submitted to him. If we're in covenant relationship with him, if we are his children, he can use it. Now let's back up. Ruth chapter one. Remember, after Naomi's sons passed away, her husband passed away, then her sons passed away. When her sons passed away, she had two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Now again, this is extra biblical. So this is outside the narrative of the scriptures. So I can't tell you this is gospel, but what rabbinic tradition tells us, so according to Jewish literature and Jewish tradition is that Orpah and Ruth may have been sisters, but Orpah was definitely descended of a guy named Eglon. Eglon was the king of Moab, so he was, she was either the daughter or the granddaughter of Eglon. Now, you might remember uh, a while back I preached a message, uh, and it was from Ruth, um, sorry, not Ruth, Judges chapter 2, and the story of Ruth takes place during the book of Judges at some point. So in Judges chapter 2, the nation of Israel is in captivity to the nation of Moab. And there's this, the hero of the story, his name's Ehud. And Ehud goes and he slays the king of Moab. And we won't get into the whole story because it's found in Judges 2. I love the story. Um, so Ehud goes and he kills the king of Moab. And, uh, and what we see is um, he's killed, the Israelites are free that day. And you kind of think that's the end of the story. But it, unless you look at Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition says his daughter or granddaughter was this woman named Orpah. So when, when the time comes in Ruth chapter 1, whenever Orpah and, and Ruth have to make the decision, are we going with Naomi? Are we going with her back to Judah to fend for ourselves and hope things work out? Or are we going back to Moab? What the choice is, is am I going back to royalty? Or am I going to, to eke out an existence with this woman? And Ruth made the decision. She said, hey, we're in relationship. We're in covenant relationship together. And remember what Ruth said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried, right? That's, that's strong commitment. And not to bemoan Orpah at all, but what she said was, I love you, but I'm going home. And she went home. 
So the story ends there in Scripture. But again, according to Jewish tradition, what we see is she married a man, a Philistine man, when she went back to to Moab. And the man she married, uh, because of a treaty between Moab and the Philistines, uh, there was a lot of intermarrying at that time. And the man she married was known as the giant. And they bore four sons together. I want to read you the names of those sons because you might need some inspiration for uh, children if you're going to have a baby. So the four sons were named... Ishbibinab, that's a keeper, write it down, Ishbibinab, Saph, Lami, and the fourth is one you may know, Goliath. Now again, we think these are all separate stories, but then they begin to be woven together a little bit, and we go, oh. So think about this for a second. Even if you're not a believer, even if you've uh, never been to church before, you've probably heard the name David and Goliath. Now think back to genealogy again. Who was David descended of? He was descended of Ruth. Who was Goliath allegedly descended of? He was descended of Orpah. See, these two women took different paths in their lives. And God blessed one. And what we see, uh, according to 2 Samuel chapter 21, there's just a few verses at the end of that chapter that describe these four sons being killed. Um, And the four sons were killed by David and his compatriots, some of his greatest leaders. And it's interesting to me, I'm not going to read too much theologically into this, that the one who, whose family followed God killed the descendants of the one whose family didn't follow God in battle. Uh, that's, that's interesting to me because I think that says something about the faithfulness of God that God really does bless, wants to help, that, that the decisions we make impact not just us, but it impacts generations to follow. It impacts our kids and grandkids and great, great grandkids, that we are setting the tone and we're making a difference, not just in our lives, but in others' lives. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the four aspects of the law of the kinsman redeemer. And at the time, you might have been thinking, what is the point of this? And I'm glad you're asking because today we're getting to it. So that was a long setup, but here we are. The four aspects of the kinsman redeemer were these. The first was that the redeemer was purposed with making sure that the deceased's name was not forgotten. And so what the redeemer would do would would be to marry and have kids and make sure that they had an inheritance, that their name was never forgotten. What we see in Boaz is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. And what we see in Ruth is, is who we are, that we are someone in need of redeeming. We are someone who needs someone to rescue us from where we're at. And what Jesus has done in a very real way is he has redeemed us from our situation and from our lives, from the the place we're in. And what he's done is he has redeemed us so that our name would not be forgotten. Our name will be forgotten. And really, if we're going to be honest, um, even scripture tells us that your great grandkids won't remember your name. And that's a little depressing. But what we have to understand is our Redeemer has redeemed us so that our story could be part of the story. So just like we see all these stories woven together in this story that God is telling, because remember, God's telling a story and it's not about David. It's not about Ruth. It's not about you or me. My story's not about me. Your story's not about you. But when we are children of God and we've been redeemed into the family of God, what happens is our story is like a thread 
in a, in a tapestry that makes up the story of God and the story of Jesus and what he's doing in this world. And so your story is part of the story, part of this meta-narrative that God is telling over all of history of who he is and how good he really is. So because we're redeemed, we are never forgotten because we're part of this eternal story that God is telling. So we're redeemed in that. Another thing that the Redeemer would do would be to buy back property and protect the property as an inheritance for the children that, that were to come. And this is what you have to understand. Some of you in your life have lost some stuff. And, and there in Scripture, it's talking literally about property, land or possessions. What we're talking about today is not land and possessions. Because if you've ever been part of a situation where maybe you've had a parent pass away, and then all this hostility begins in the family about, well, who's going to get? How do we split that up? And people who love each other all of a sudden become contentious and combative over stuff. And I think if you've gone through that situation before, I think you would probably admit there's some things that are more important than stuff. Um, and what I think happens to us whenever we are redeemed, because uh, really what the Redeemer would do would protect the inheritance. And so when we're redeemed into the body of Christ, what really happens is we've got an inheritance to pass on to our kids. And it might not be a big bank account or a gigantic house, but what it is is a godly heritage. See, just like Ruth and Orpah made decisions about their families, made decisions about their lives, that they left an inheritance for their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, you are making a decision about your inheritance today as you enter into relationship with Christ, as you maintain relationship with Christ in this covenant relationship. We are leaving an inheritance, and that Redeemer, he, he gives us an inheritance to give away, and he protects that inheritance. That's what the Redeemer does. The third thing we see is that the Redeemer would buy back any living brother that had been sold into slavery. So if I had family members that were sold into slavery, the Redeemer would set them free. And I'm telling you today, if you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, uh, the Redeemer doesn't just redeem you so that you can be saved. He redeems you so that he can redeem the people around you as well. There are people in your not life that are in slavery, they're in bondage, they need to be set free. And you are an instrument of redemption for them. The Redeemer has set you free, he's redeemed you, and now his purpose is to redeem those around you as well. There are people in your home that need to be redeemed. And you can't just sit back and hope that someday it's going to work out. God wants to use you to see redemptive purposes in their lives, no matter how desperate or painful it might be. There are people in your workplace, in your neighborhood. Some of you are going to have a barbecue on Monday with a bunch of people who are desperate need of Redeemer. And I'm telling you today, when the Redeemer redeems us, he's in the, he's in the work of setting free the people around us as well. That's part of the obligation of a Redeemer. And that's what he'll do. You can take it to the bank. God's desire is to do that. You've got to trust him to do that. You've got to be a part of that process. The fourth thing that the Redeemer would do is he would be the avenger of blood. Um, I think if you are a human being, if you breathe in and out, you have been hurt. Maybe deeply by people. Maybe uh, you've been betrayed. Maybe it's gone so far as maybe you've been abused physically, verbally, sexually. And there are deep scars on our soul that come with that pain. Even a simple betrayal, someone you thought you could trust that, that you, turns out you can't trust them. Th those are all hurts that we have. And, and what would happen in Scripture is the Redeemer was responsible for making sure justice, justice came to the perpetrator of the evil. And I'm telling you today, when we are redeemed in Christ, when he, when he buys us back, 
Again, not to be slaves, but to be in relationship. What happens is he takes on the responsibility of bringing justice. Uh, the times I've been hurt in my life, there have been times that I've thought, man, God, I wish you would. I wish I could, right? And what we have to do is go, okay, you know what? I give up that right of finding justice now. It's not my right. It's not my responsibility. Now it's God's responsibility. We see several times in Scripture God is described as uh, an avenger for us. You thought Captain America was a good avenger. I'm telling you, they don't get any better than God. He is the ultimate avenger, right? That he is an avenger for his children. And what we see in Deuteronomy 32-35 uh, is God actually says, vengeance is mine. And so what he's telling his people is, you don't get hung up in how to get even. I will take care of that. You've been wronged. You've been hurt. This is the good thing. God, uh, he knows what kind of hurt we've been through. Because everything we've been through, he's been through through his son, Jesus Christ. So when you've been betrayed, God goes, hey, I know how bad you hurt because I've been, I've been betrayed too. I'll take care of this. You lay that hurt down. You lay that betrayal down. You lay that bitterness down. I've got this. And his justice might not look like our justice, but you can be assured that the Redeemer's responsibility is to bring justice to a situation that is unjust. Now, this doesn't mean we're off the hook. If there's injustice in our world, we still need to be vessels of justice around us. But when we've been hurt, that's where we lay it down and go, okay, God, this is your responsibility. And he will do it every time. See, what we see here is a picture of who God is. He is a redemptive God. He is a God who wants to make situations right. And what we have to do is submit ourselves to him and say, God, I'm yours. I'm in covenant relationship with you. Where you go, I go. I will follow you. Your people will be my people. And when we choose that, God can work in amazing ways. There's a passage of scripture, that even if you're not a churchgoer, you've probably heard it. It's uh, Psalm 23, and you've probably heard it at funerals or different public settings. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I won't read the whole thing, but the, the last verse in verse 6 is, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a, just a declaration from the psalmist from David saying, hey, this is what God will do. This is who God is. And he says, surely mercy, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Another way to interpret that word follow is pursue. And I love that word. I love watching, I like documentaries, but I'm a sucker for like animal nature documentaries. Does anybody else, if you're flipping through the channels and you see a cheetah in the grass, right? Like you stop, you gotta see this because I, I, just, I just like this stuff. So I always stop and I wanna see what's gonna happen. And you, you see the cheetah in the grass and there's this group of gazelle and they're just going about their business. They're just eating their, uh, eating their grass and all of a sudden one of them looks up like startled and the other, and all of a sudden all these gazelle look up and before you know it, the cheetah has burst out of the undergrowth and he is chasing after, he's pursuing his prey. And, and, and if you are a normal human being, you are rooting for the gazelle to get away, right? Like run, no turn, turn, he's going to get you. Little do we know this isn't live footage, it's been recorded already, like this, this cat's either dead already or you know what I mean, so. But we're rooting and if you're rooting for the cheetah, like Pastor Dick has some sessions that he could set up with you to do some counseling. Um, <laughs> we're concerned for you. Um, but this cheetah is running at full force until it gets to its prey. And it is chasing after that 
pray with everything it's got. And this is how I imagine the goodness and mercy of God is pursuing us, chasing after us with everything that God's got to chase us down. That is the God we serve. Now, now let me back up just a little bit. We've been talking a little bit during this message, but even throughout this series about hesed, this covenant love, this covenant relationship. If you look at this word mercy, I told you before, this, this word hesed can be translated in a lot of different ways because it's, it's so broad, it's hard for us to pin it down with one definition. But this word mercy could also be interpreted, the actual word there, the Hebrew word is hesed. So what it's really saying is the goodness of God and the hesed, the loving kindness, the covenant relationship of God, his, his commitment to love me in spite of my flaws will chase me down, will pursue me, it will keep after me. So this is what you have to understand. Huh. We're in relationship with Jesus. When you, when you submit your life to him, we're in covenant with him. And when we stray, when we make mistakes, the goodness and mercy of God continue to chase after us and pursue us. This is what we see in the life of Ruth and her descendants, that mercy and goodness of God chased down her descendants. This is what we see in the life of Orpah too, that that goodness and mercy were absent. I'm telling you today, this matters for us today. This is not just some ancient law that we see in the book of Ruth or in the book of Judges. This is something that matters to us today because we serve a redeemer. We have been redeemed if you're a child of God. And if you're not a child of God, I got good news for you. Today can be your day. You can come into contact, into relationship with a Jesus that loves you desperately beyond anything you could ever know or understand. He wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem your family. He wants to make things right. He wants to bring justice to your situation. He wants to make sure that your name is part of this story, that your story is part of this rich tapestry that God is telling about his plan for planet Earth. The question is, will you take that step? Why don't you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful that uh, you love us. We're so grateful that we get to be a part of your plan for planet Earth. We're so grateful that we get to be part of this story that you're telling about you. And God, I pray that today um, each of us would understand that, that when we submit our lives to you and we're redeemed today, it's not just about us. It's about the people around us. It's about your story. It's about the freedom that people need in, our, in the lives around us, God. It's about seeing people come to know you. So God, I pray today you'd help us not have a, a selfish vision of what you've got for us. But God, help us see that you want to use us for your glory and help us see how much you love us, how desperately you love us, and that your love will pursue us and chase us down to the ends of the earth. So God, for those that are here that don't know you, draw them. Help them recognize the beauty of Christ. Let them be attracted to that and drawn to that. For those of us here that are Christians that are on our way to heaven, we're in relationship with you, God. Let us understand deeply what it means to be in covenant relationship with you, what it means to be redeemed by you, and how that impacts us and the people around us. God, I pray that it will elicit a response of praise within us, that we will worship you more richly because of what you've done and what you're doing. So God, have your way with us over these next few moments. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Mel, you know what, I'm, 
I'm the one you're describing. I'm not really a Christian. I'm not really serving God. I, I, I don't know what it's like to be in covenant relationship because that's not me. But today, I want to experience that love that you talked about, the love of Christ that has said love. I want to know what that is. I want to experience that. I need to be redeemed today. I'm not going to make you come forward or embarrass you. I just want to pray with you right where you're at. So if you're here today and you say, Mel, that's me, pray for me. I need redeemed. I need to make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be bold enough to put your hand up real high where I can see it? And you can put it right back down. Is there any, you'd say, that's me. Pray for me, Mel. Just slip your hand up real high where I can see it. Thanks, up in the balcony. I see you. Appreciate that. Praise God. Praise God. Who else? Just a few more seconds and say, pray for me, Mel. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life today. I want to experience that love that you're talking about. All right, I'd like everyone in this room to repeat this prayer after me, whether you raised your hand or not. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and thank you for redeeming me by paying the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, I commit to follow you. You are my God and you have my life. Use it for your glory and help me never go back to my old ways, my old life, or my old thinking. From this day forward, I am yours and you are mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a round of applause today. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, we would love to help you take the next step in your faith and grow in your faith. The simplest way to do that is by filling a card out that's in the seat back in front of you. On one side it says need prayer, on the other side it says salvation. If you'll fill out the side of the card that says salvation, and just simply drop it in one of our offering boxes as you leave today. There's one in the balcony, there's two in the main, by the main doors here, and there's one just outside these east doors. But just slip it in there on your way out. And then in the next few days, one of our team is going to reach out to you. We're going to give you some options for relationships, small groups, uh, for some resources that are going to help you grow in your faith and take the next step. And that's what we're here for. That's what we want to do. If you're watching online and you'd like to respond, uh, all, you can, all you need to do is simply text the word salvation to the number 555-888. And if you're here in the area, we'll get you connected here at Summit Church. And if you're not in the area, we're going to get you connected with a life-giving church where you're at that's going to help you grow in your faith. So again, thank you for worshiping with us today. Pray that God has blessed you. Here's what's going to happen now. The worship team's going to lead us in one more song. We're going to sing together. And while we're singing, our prayer team's going to make their way forward to either side of the stage. And so we're here to pray with you and agree with you no matter what may be going on in your life. So when we begin to sing, if you need prayer, step out from your seat, find one of our prayer team members today and let them agree with you in prayer. And then in just a moment, when we're done singing, Pastor Dick Motzing, our associate pastor, is going to come and he'll dismiss us and close us out. So why don't you stand in your feet all over the room. We're going to worship together one more time before we go, guys. And I tell you this every week. But I never want you to forget, I love you more than you know, and I'm so glad that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have a great weekend.